consider with us the American South in the year 1865. The war between the states has ended, and the southern land has been devastated. And for white southerners, what they are seeing is beyond the worst-case scenario, because before the war, very few, if any, had seriously entertained the possibility that slavery would be eliminated. Now they have been militarily and economically fully defeated, and they must accept a ban on slavery and freedom for the enslaved if they're going to be able to rejoin the Union, and if they're going to be able to have any hope of rebuilding in their lives. In 1865 to 1876, the period of time is known as Reconstruction. It's known for its military occupation and enforced access to civil rights and voting for everyone in the American South, at least among the men. A time in which the Republican Party remained ascendant in elections, boosted by black voters, a time of significant participation of black people in state and federal governments. The American South would rebuild in every sense of the term. The land would be restored, the cities would be rebuilt, and they rebuilt the white supremacy and society in which black people would continue to be degraded. Because the end of slavery did not bring about the end of white supremacy anywhere in America. By 1876, the northern areas were exhausted by their military occupation of the South, the cost it was imposing in terms of not just money but also blood, and the North was content to let the South deal with black people as they would because they quote-unquote knew them better. And so from 1876 until 1918, white Southerners methodically established the Jim Crow regulations, maintaining terror through lynching, disenfranchising black people, hindering black people from exercising civil rights, setting up the separate but truly unequal society to hinder associations between black and white people, and this culminated with Woodrow Wilson who, in the 1914 and 1918 period, removed black people from federal government employment. And through the effective use of media, historical revisionism, and agitation from groups like the Daughters of the Confederacy, the lost cause myth was perpetuated throughout this time frame. Statues of all kinds of Confederates were raised. For pension and other purposes, Confederate soldiers were reckoned as equal to federal soldiers. And they, under they interpreted Reconstruction as a failure and a misdirection that it would take the blood, sweat, and tears of the civil rights movement from 1920 to 1965 to finally make good on the promise of civil rights and voting for black people and other people of color. The lost cause myth and hostile perspectives toward Reconstruction would remain in vogue not only in the South, but throughout the Academy for most of the 20th century. If you go to the Ken Burns Civil War documentary from the early 90s, it's still there as well. Only now, a century and a half later, are we at the place, to the place where W.E.B. Du Bois figured we would eventually reach, reassessing Reconstruction and seeing it for the positive attempts that it manifested. And we're still having lively arguments about what the Confederate flag means and what should be done with Confederate statues. Let's also consider the world in the days of Woodrow Wilson, after the Great War, 1918 and 1919. The war had ended by armistice, millions were killed, and plenty of others had been traumatized beyond belief by the experience of World War I. France lay in ruins, the economies and the state of England and France and Germany and Austria were exhausted. Uh, there was no longer a Russia, it was now the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And the Ottoman Empire was drawing its last breaths and would soon be replaced by a myriad of states in the Middle East. And above all this, the H1N1 epidemic spread across the world and had 
caused more deaths than those who had died in war by a very significant number. There was very interpretive but potent interpretation looking at the end of World War I that it was the death of Western civilization. It dashed the positivism of the modern era and it demonstrated the horrifying results of the industrialization of military conflict, a whole generation of prospect cut down or traumatized. The British, French, and the Americans were at least able to maintain their own governments as it had been before. The Germans, the Russians, and the Austrians had gone through democratic or communist transformations. And in fact, the British government would soon open up their franchise for voting to everyone. The end of the war, however, reconstruction or rebuilding was done quietly. People did not want to talk about what was experienced in the war and were silent about all the sufferings of the H1N1 pandemic. But just because no one wanted to talk about it didn't mean that there wasn't any trauma that was going to have to be resolved regarding it. Because Britain and France pushed for punishing and humiliating terms for the Germans and the Austrians. The French uh, suffered so much uh, and invaded the most profitable areas of Germany for a time and built up their own defensive. And in Germany, many clung to the idea that they had the militarily upper hand and had been betrayed by their leaders. And there was one Austrian who looked forward to vindicating Germany uh, in a future time. The 1920s may have been an economic boom time for the Allies and degrading for the Central Powers, but the 1930s saw economic depression for the Allies and the rise of totalitarian fascist regimes in Italy and Germany. In almost every respect, the way the Allies ended World War I divided the world up, and how they treated people around the world set up everything that has followed in our history ever since. It set up in the ground for World War II. It set up the conflict with the USSR that would be the Cold War that defined most of the rest of the 20th century. It would define how the Middle East, Africa, and Asia would be riven with conflict, even manifest in 2011 when ISIS ceremonially tried to destroy part of the border between Syria and Iraq trying to undo some of the things that had been done by the Europeans in the wake of World War I. And how it all went from the Great War to the war to end all wars to World War I tells you everything about how it was viewed for a century. And that it's only been with the passing of a full century that we have returned to consider the real effects of World War I, especially on the United States and Europe, and how the trauma still lingered for generations to come. And the one of the main expressions of that trauma was World War II, which itself was almost impossible to imagine in terms of the sheer amounts of suffering and death that was uh, imposed upon the world. The Holocaust we think of, the atomic bombs we think of, but even just the cost of war, the total war, and how many civilians and soldiers suffered in the Western and Eastern fronts and theaters is just simply uh, impossible to believe. And World War II is only 80 years ago, or we're coming up to it being about 80 years ago. And we still do not entirely know what to do with what happened yet, because we're still processing. We're still trying to make sense of it all. And we can also consider Judah in the year 585 BC. The Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Something between 50 and 90% of the population had died in the conflict with the Babylonians from famine, pestilence, plague, or violence. 
the rest of the population was exiled. Everything that the Judahites had believed about Yahweh and themselves had been overthrown. We can see that in 2 Kings 25 and in Jeremiah. Many, probably most of the exiles, scattered in Egypt, Babylon, and elsewhere, and who have turned away from their ancestral beliefs and assimilated into the local population and its views, like we can see in Jeremiah 44 with those in Egypt. Yet a remnant, a very few, came to accept what they endured as Yahweh's judgment for the immorality and idolatry that they and their ancestors had done. They grieved bitterly their losses, as we can see in Lamentations. And Yahweh inspired some of them to edit the historical chronicles and narratives to reframe the story of Israel from Egypt to Babylon as one of continual failure to uphold Yahweh as the God of Israel, as is evident in Deuteronomy through Second Kings. And future generations would return to that land, but they would manifest the trauma of the exile experience, which can be vividly seen in how both Daniel and Ezra pray in Daniel chapter 9 and Ezra chapter 9. We're so glad that you've joined us. Thank you for spending uh, some time with us today and giving the gift of that spent time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and through Scripture. I'm Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We are a non-denominational group of disciples making disciples in Los Angeles, and we want to be of encouragement to you. Why would we have just gone through and looked at all this kind of history if we're trying to consider spiritual things? Well, they provide very concrete examples of destruction and the reconstruction that would follow. And they provide us some perspective and a jumping off point for us to explore what happens after faith and life deconstruction. We've been talking a little bit about what deconstruction looks like. And it's hard to really generalize about it because everybody has a unique experience but what's normally going on is that someone has gone through a time of great trial, tribulation, stress, and alienation. They've been going through intense critical reassessment of many of the things they've held dear. They're tearing down a lot of the things that they had formerly held in high esteem. And it was not done with glee or excitement. It is a very brutal process. In Matthew 7 and verse 27, this is the situation it is. It is imagining the rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. Storm destruction is violent, which you can see at the result of any hurricane, any tornado. And it is also the same way with deconstruction, even when deconstruction proves utterly necessary. We're going to talk today about reconstruction. And when we think of the word reconstruction to begin with, it's very easy to understand what we're talking about. Reconstructing is building something that's been destroyed. It can very easily lead to a positive as Bob the Builder, yes we can type attitude. But we really need to soberly look at the examples we've looked at from history to look at what reconstruction really looks like. Because reconstruction really looks like uh, a very difficult set of affairs because of the wreckage left behind in the destruction. We might think the examples given are overly dramatic, but they are helpful in surveying the situation to remind us that this is a very serious matter and that it's not just a naive, easy thing to go toward reconstruction. And there's a lot of dangers that attend to how we might try to reconstruct as these historical parallels can show us. What might reconstruction look like? What 
happens after we've gone through and gone through this pure deconstruction. We've torn down some things and we're left with this field where we might still have some structure left, but we've got a lot of wreckage. Well, one path would involve denial and hostility. The idea of deconstruction as a critical reassessment of the deposit of belief on a kind of a crisis catalyst is unwanted, it's often unexpected, and it's always disorienting. And so there's one path that is strong hostility and resistance to that critical reassessment itself, a wanting to deny even the need for deconstruction, to look for as little as change as possible. And this is very much parallel to that reconstruction example that we see in American history, right? Where we look at the end of the Civil War and what the white American Southerners wanted to do above all was to try to make everything the way that it had been before and to make as few possible changes, trying to return to normal, acting as if nothing had happened. Now, there may be some situations in which a rebuilding like that might be generally profitable because the critical reassessment should not need to change a whole lot because the belief system before the crisis catalyst was fairly solid. If we're looking at our Matthew 7, 24-27 model again with this, very little was built on sand and so very few changes proved necessary to remain firmly on the rock. But more often than not, this kind of posture is going to prove counterproductive because it doesn't want to admit the insufficiency of what had been believed and done before. It resists the kind of change necessary that to build on that rock, unwilling to grapple with grief and the reality of change. And this is when it's important for us to remember that we, in our naivete, want to imagine that what gets reconstructed after deconstruction will automatically be better than what was built in the first place. And there's no guarantee of that. We might end up rebuilding in worse ways than what we started with. And we might be storing up wrath for another storm based on what we're rebuilding. Maybe it'll be another crisis catalyst in the future. Or maybe ultimately on the day of judgment, as Paul talks about, everything will be uh, burned with fire and it will be exposed its value uh, on that day in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Just like there was in America a delayed reassessment, a delayed reckoning uh, with the civil rights movement that should have all been dealt with uh, a century earlier. We could also imagine paths which may not be as extreme as what we've mentioned, but are still more oriented toward denial and hostility. Something like Lot's wife, looking back a bit too positively on the time before, nostalgic for what was lost. A reconstructed viewpoint, a bit too hemmed in by past perspective and still subject to many of the same kind of difficulties that we mentioned. So that's one path of reconstruction. Another extreme path to hostility and denial would be the one of complete rejection. A response to the crisis catalyst, the critical self-assessment might lead somebody to run as far away as possible from what was believed earlier and to reject everything that had been accepted before. That would be those who have completely abandoned their faith as a result of what they have experienced. Or maybe they'll reject everything, but very little of what they end up doing and building up represents what God has done in Jesus and looks a lot more like the ways of some kind of worldly culture, whether the worldly culture that that many want to decry as as open to sexual morality and such things, or a worldly culture that may be something very different. This is like the Judites who abandon their ancestral traditions and assimilate into local populations. 
And the lesson of Matthew 7, 24-27 remains salient, that whatever is not built on the rock, that is, whatever is, whenever we are not hearing and doing what Jesus said, it's not going to endure. So yes, in, in this time, God in Christ will give space for people to completely reject the ways of God in Christ. But there will be some future catalyst or storm that is still out there. And if there's nothing else, there's that ultimate judgment day, which will not go well if you are not doing what Jesus has said, according to Matthew 7, 21-24 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-11. And just like with hostility and denial, so also with rejection. There are paths we can imagine that may not feature full rejection or secularization, but in trauma and grief, a bit overly cynical, jaded or disillusioned with aspects of what God has made known in Christ, and in saying and doing what Jesus said, that's sim- subject to similar difficulties. There's a lot of times where people end up getting burned by the people of God behaving badly or overemphasizing things to the point where things that are actually true in Christ, even if they have a bad rap, ends up uh, getting that cynical treatment and ends up not being done, and those difficulties which will follow with the storm and the judgment. So that's the opposite path, right? And then there is the attempt to have no path at all. And that's the person who suffers the crisis catalyst, but doesn't want to do any kind of reassessment, just stays in place. may also look like somebody who's had a lot of their belief system torn down, but doesn't have motivation or energy to rebuild and find a way forward. It would be if a group considered earlier just continues to sit in the wreckage. Or it's somewhat like what happened after World War I, where the attempt to deal with it was to not deal with it. And we can understand that there would be a time period in which to sit in an experience of grief, but it's delusional to act as if nothing happened or as if there is no way forward. In this kind of situation, the grief or topor will consume those within it. It cannot have a good result. The trauma will be expressed somehow, just like in World War I. All of that uh, stuff came out in how everything worked uh, for the past century. Another path of reconstruction is to build a fortress. This may look like someone very much abused, hurt, and traumatized by a church or parachurch organization. And in response, they build a fortress to protect themselves, and they alienate and isolate themselves. And it's understandable how a person might spend a season in greater seclusion and would prove more gun-shy about trusting in a community because of what they had experienced. Yet in our individualistic age especially, it's very easily tempting to go rebuild that fortress, to go into it alone and try to fence people out. And we have to remember that God's purpose in Jesus is relational unity with God and people. And thus it is the purpose of the evil one to disrupt and destroy relational unity. A person who is intentionally sealed off from community is alienated from the body of Christ. Uh, And this is working exactly against God's purposes in Ephesians 2 and 3. And again, we can imagine paths that may not be as extreme in solitude, but more aligned with that disillusionment about joint participation in life with the people of God. And that is why throughout whatever we're going to suffer, we need to keep in mind who God is and what he's about. And it's about that relational unity. And yes, it is very traumatic when that relational unity is abused. And we don't want to minimize that. But that doesn't mean that the relational unity desire and yearning itself is bad. And we have to find ways to try to recognize that no man is an island. We cannot do this alone. It is not good for us to be alone. That we do need to do this with people. Now, the healthiest path of reconstruction is going to be a chastened and reoriented path. And this is going to involve someone who has grappled with their crisis catalyst. 
They've reassessed a lot of their beliefs, and they found a lot lacking, and because of that, they've been humbled and chastened, having to come to the sum terms of the fact that they had been deceived and deluded to some degree or another. They're going to grapple with that grief and trauma that attends to that crisis catalyst and the fallout from the deconstruction it engendered. And what they're going to rebuild, they're going to seek to do not on the basis of their hurt, but in order to be and do better, to better say, hear and do what Jesus said. They will be like those with more perspective on the matter. The faithful remnant of Israel in and after the exile. And to these will most likely belong the kingdom of God in Christ. So, how can we encourage people in their reconstruction journeys to do it in the healthy way? One of the things is the power of example. And that's why we've had these conversations of these different examples of reconstruction. Because what we see on a societal level in the past, or can see in the embodied examples of people we know, we can show what happens with devastation rebuilding and give insight in how to rebuild well. And unfortunately, most of these examples are going to be negative, like the ones that we have already adduced, because it shows you what can go wrong with reconstruction, how how the way one reconstructs will set up future devastation, or how rebuilding can get distorted or derailed by unprocessed grief and trauma. But we also might be able to find more healthy examples of how people rebuilt from what was destroyed and apply their lessons as well. Because healthy reconstruction will always be a process subjected to the lordship of God and Christ. And it has a goal, to clear out the debris of what was built on sand, the ways in which we are hearing Jesus and not doing what he said, so we can build better on the rock, to hear Jesus and to better do what he says. In Matthew 7, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, and Colossians 2, 1-10. So in healthy reconstruction, we're going to keep in mind that crisis catalyst and what it might have exposed. Then we need to confess humbly that there are some things we had taken for granted that were wrong, that we had some vested interests which clouded our insight and led us to not do what Jesus said. And because of that, we're going to realize our limitations, our weaknesses. And we're going to be more open to the fact that we are going to need to be more critically reassessing uh, because of other crisis catalysts. So this looks like repentance and preparation, to use the terms we're much more familiar with from the Bible, something we can see in Matthew 25 and in Acts 17, 30-31. In healthy reconstruction, we're always looking to the rock, to hear and do what Jesus said, neither turning away from Jesus nor justifying or rationalizing those areas which we are not entirely doing what Jesus said. In healthy reconstruction, by looking to Jesus, cannot be done alone. It is a confession of the need of community and a willingness to be part of community, even though we might have been harmed before by communities. And ultimately, healthy reconstruction will continually look back to the experiences of that crisis catalyst, the deconstruction, the reconstruction, so that we can see what worked out ultimately for a better, healthier faith and what may not have contributed to that result. Because again, we're going to have to resist the binary, that no one is going to have the complete ideal reconstruction or deconstruction, or uh, have a completely horrible deconstruction or reconstruction, that there's going to be a mixed bag in all of this, because that's the nature of who we are as human beings, uh, as we seek to accomplish God's purposes, yet are beset by our limitations and our corruption. Why have we even bothered, though, spending time discussing deconstruction or reconstruction? Why have this conversation at all? Well, it's an exhortation, because the storm comes. In Matthew 7, 
That's the one thing that is consistent in the two experiences. Uh, whether you hear what Jesus says and do them or don't do them, you build your life, you have this thing that you do, and a storm's going to come and test it. The storm is going to come. Crisis catalysts are going to come in our lives. They, we're not going to see them coming. We're not going to be as prepared for them as we'd like to be. And if we don't even give any thought to it, we're going to be completely unprepared for what we're going to experience. Now, some of these crisis catalysts are going to only require cosmetic adaptations and reconstruction because it's going to involve things that we have built well on Jesus, where we are saying, we've heard what he said and we're doing it. But some of them very might well expose where we have not built well on Jesus, and it's going to have a great fall, and it require extensive reconstruction. They're going to happen. They may happen often. And they're going to force reconsiderations of how we have rebuilt before. And that's why it's good for us to consider these things. But we're also talking about these in a way to be sensitive toward those who have undergone or are undergoing or will soon undergo these kind of crisis catalysts in a season of deconstruction. Because we want to support and encourage them throughout that experience. And we need to foster a community in which we are walking by faith in Jesus hearing and doing what he said, open to those going through challenges, welcoming and proving willing to address questions with love and humility, to be patient with those grappling with these difficulties, and being willing to grapple with, correct, and repent where we may have caused harm, abuse, or distress. To no longer walk in the ways of the flesh, but to pursue the things of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 17-24. We're not perfect, but we should be willing and able to show true humility to admit problems and difficulties, to be open to how we have fallen short and not presume that we have to be the ones with all the answers or that we have to have everything entirely and fully sorted out because that has not been given to us. That is only true in Jesus. To support people in their reconstruction means to walk with them and to lend a hand, to accept them, to give them every reason to feel they belong, to be willing to listen much and speak little, like James tells us in James 1, 19 and 20, and just to be there. We need to make sure we're not making it about ourselves, that we provide love and encouragement for them without the baggage of our own insecurities, anxieties, griefs, fears, and trauma about what they're going through uh, or their process of deconstruction or reconstruction. Yet at the same time, we cannot be entirely aloof. And none of this is clean and sanitary without personal cost. We will be changed in the process ourselves of walking with people going through these things, Assisting others might cause a crisis catalyst in our own lives for a period of deconstruction. And we might well find ourselves challenged ourselves on the things that we hold firmly with great fervor, whether they are true or not true in Jesus. And in the end, our goal must be to prove more faithful citizens of the kingdom of God in Jesus, to, to act more like a citizen of that kingdom in Philippians 1.27, to hear and do what Jesus says despite any crisis catalyst, to humbly reconsider our fundamental beliefs and assumptions in light of the crisis catalyst so we can better conform to what God has made known in Christ, and to provide support and encouragement to others who might go through the same. So that's why we've been talking about deconstruction and today, reconstruction, 
and why with reconstruction we need to not be naive about the process, to realize that there was real trauma, real difficulties that are going to resonate in a person's life, and that it will be very tempting to try to rebuild either as if nothing had happened, to rebuild as if we need to change everything and to reject everything that came before, to pretend that there is no need to rebuild at all, and to just sit in the grief and trauma. And to realize that in all these, or to build a fortress, uh, where we try to just keep everybody else out. And to realize all of these are unhealthy in many ways and may lead to us being in a worse place after this experience than when we began. That we understand for a healthy reconstruction, it needs to be undone with a view that we're going through grief and trauma to seek greater unity with God in Christ and with his people. That can't be individual in nature that we need to do it to grow in relational unity, that what is rebuilt is more strongly connected to one another than what had been built before. It's messy. It's never really over because there will be future crisis catalysts, further experiences of crisis and trial, and we might have to deconstruct again and again as further weaknesses and ways we have not done what Jesus has said are exposed. And that's why we do best when we are loving, humble, patient, caring, and fostering an environment of love, acceptance, belonging, open to being questioned, patient in endurance, walking and transforming together to be more like God in Christ, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And thus, we set forth the question of how can we reconstruct in healthy ways and support and encourage those reconstructing their faith. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please let us know in the comments and subscribe to us and please continue our conversation. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us. We're thankful that for Jesus, for uh, the material creation, for every spiritual blessing you've given us in Jesus, the Spirit, the Word, one another. Uh, we pray that we would never take these things for granted. And we pray, Father, when it comes to the issue of reconstructing after going through uh, some crisis catalysts and trials in our faith, and we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding and insight uh, to be able to spend the time and grief necessary and to wisely seek to rebuild our lives, to hear and do better uh, what your Son has said, and that we might be able to encourage and strengthen and show love and patience to those who are doing the same thing. Uh, we pray that we will continually seek to be a group of people who are open and humble and looking to you for all things, and willing to recognize where we have fallen short, to admit as much, and to seek to do and to be better. We pray that we will be able to have such things until your Son returns, that we may be able to share an eternal life with him forever. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you currently are going through a season of your life and faith involving deconstruction or maybe trying to put the pieces back together, we would love to be of some kind of service encouragement to you in that process or for anyone uh, who is in need of encouragement. Please reach out to us at VeniceRichardChrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.